Thank you, worship team. We are continuing in our series in the book of 1 Samuel. So you want to open to chapter 18. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use uh, the blue Bible in front of you, page uh, 241. And I'm going to read through several different passages of Scripture. Uh, so I just want you to have your Bibles open as we uh, follow along. And I don't know if anyone counted in the first service, but just as a little bit of a warning, this is one of my favorite passages from the book of 1 Samuel. So I'm going to say favorite several times. And if you're like bored, you can just have a little tab, like how many times I say that. You ever do that with your teachers? Like they say the same word over and over. So your pastor may say favorite, or this is my favorite one, or wow. Those are all going to come out several times. So I'm just warning you up front. But when you find somebody who likes the same television show, series, likes the same movie series, likes the same book series, one of the first questions you ask them is, hey, what's your favorite character? So whether you're a person who watches This Is Us, and you find somebody who starts watching, you say, is it, is it Jack or Rebecca, Beth or Randall? Who's your favorite character? If you like the, the Marvel series with the new movie that's coming out at the end of the month, half of the characters died in the last you know, movie. So you're wondering, well, did my favorite character, are they going to come back? Which, which is one of your favorites? Do you like the Black Panther or the Black Widow or Captain America? Which, which is your favorite? If you're middle school, high school, and you've read Percy Jackson and the Olympians. You know, who's your favorite? As soon as you find somebody who likes the same series, you start asking, who's your favorite character? And 1 Samuel is a book of really great characters. There's some really worthwhile characters in the book of 1 Samuel, but my favorite character is Jonathan. And I started wondering, why, why do I like Jonathan so much? And, and I thought this, one, Jonathan's never the main person on the stage. The main person on the stage in the book of 1 Samuel is either going to be Samuel or Saul, the first king, or David, which is where we are in the book of 1 Samuel right now. David's coming onto the scene. So he's never the, the main character, but he enters in at critical moments with some measure of courage and humility. He, he somehow manages to come into the story, whether it's with Saul or with David, and he comes in with a measure of courage, and he comes in with a, a measure of humility. So I think that's why Jonathan's my favorite, because when I think about 1 Samuel, I don't think I'm ever going to be a great prophet like Samuel. So I look at Samuel and say, wow, he got chosen. He got called in the temple. He, he set up for a very specific moment in time. He's the transition figure from the last judge to the first king. He's got a very special call. So I'm not going to be that. I'm not going to be a king like Saul or like David. So, so when I look at Jonathan, I think, but here's a character that seems accessible to me. I, if, if I really trust God... It's possible for me to enter in to the story. It's possible for Paul Phillips to get on life stage. And if I trust God, I can really enter into situations. I can really enter into circumstances. I can really enter into people's lives with courage 
and humility. That's something that it seems like is possible for me. So he seems accessible, and so he's my favorite. So I want to do three things as we look at this whole life of Jonathan. One, I want to spend several minutes in the beginning just putting his life into context. So I'm basically going to try to convince you that he too should be your favorite character. And I want us to understand who Jonathan is. And then secondly, I want us just to see what he teaches us about vertical or horizontal relationships one with another. How do you have a friendship one to another? And then what does he teach us about friendship with God or vertical friendship with God? So Jonathan teaches a lot of things, but I'm going to zero in on friendship. How does he, what does he do to teach us about our relationships, our friendships with each other and friendship with God? First, context. Jonathan is the oldest son of the, the current king, King Saul. And everyone knows that the oldest son is uh, the king in the wings, so to speak. Saul's on the stage. He's the king. But Jonathan, he's in the, he's in the wings. He's waiting to come on stage. He's the prince. He's on his way to becoming the king. And so he's waiting to take over. And one of the places that we were first introduced to Jonathan was back in chapter 14. So let's just turn back there because I want to see a couple of verses from 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. Most of you will remember this uh, very critical passage and a very interesting sermon. You remember Saul, he's the one who's been chosen to be the king. He's the one who's supposed to be trusting in God and fighting the Philistines, fighting the enemy. But one day the Philistines decide to, to come in mass against Israel and Saul gets afraid. He gets so afraid, he goes and hides in a cave. And it's like he's saying, if I just hide in the cave, maybe when I come out, the situation will all be resolved. You ever done that? Yes, you have many times, right? Something big happens and you just think, if I just go and kind of lock myself in my room, when I come out, it'll all be done but it just never is, right? It's always still there, but he's stuck in a cave. He's frozen in fear, and Jonathan's in this cave with him. And Jonathan and his armor bearer decide, hey, let's crawl out of the cave. Let's get unstuck from my dad's fear, and we'll move out. And who knows what the Lord might do? And they end up on the edge of a ravine or a valley, and there's about 600 men on one side, the Israelites, and there's 40,000 on the other side. And it's just Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they have this great little dialogue, chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I mean, what a great comment. See, he has the courage and the humility to come out. He has the courage to come out and say, who knows what God might do? It doesn't matter if, if God's on our side, the number is not important. So who knows? But do you see what he says? I'm not positive. I have a measure of humility I'm not God. He might have something else in his mind. So I have courage to step out and the humility to say, 
I mean, I hope God might do something, but maybe God has a different plan. I can't be positive. And then the armor bearer looks at Jonathan as he's standing there on the edge of the ravine, looking at these 40,000 soldiers, 30,000 chariots. And he looks at Jonathan, verse 7, and says, have at it, Jonathan. I'll be right here when you get back. No, that's, that's the Paul Phillips version. That's what I would have done. What? I mean, can you see? It's two against 40,000. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I mean, you want to kiss this guy right on the lips. I mean, he's awesome. He's standing there. He sees the kings frozen in fear. He sees Jonathan having a courage and humility to come out. And he's, he's standing there and he sees his role is to try to, to try to push some courage into Jonathan to say, yes, let's go. And I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your friend. We're, we're going to tackle this thing together. And whatever happens, it's going to happen to both of us. Such a, such a great picture of friendship here just with Jonathan and uh, his armor bearer. Well, Jonathan is a mix of courage and humility, and his courage and humility, as you read through the story, causes people to want to be his friend. He's the kind of person that that other people are attracted to because of his personality. Then we skip to chapter 17, which uh, Sam did such a great job talking about last week, David and Goliath. David comes to the battle, you remember? And, and the, the nine-foot Philistine, Goliath, is standing out there challenging uh, God's people for 40 days. And David comes as this little boy. He's 18. 18. He's a senior in high school. And his courage changes the course of a whole nation. One 18-year-old boy who's not even supposed to be in the battle, he changes the, 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 the whole direction of his family and of his nation. Wow. I mean, it's incredible. And we come to uh, the very end of the chapter, very powerful, very pregnant moment. I want you to read it with me. Chapter 17, verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, against Goliath, he said to his, the commander of his army, a guy named Abner, Abner, whose son is this? And Abner says, as, as my soul lives, I don't know. And the king said, well, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down uh, Goliath, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. Notice, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. I mean, could he not just drop it on the battlefield? He's coming to the king. He's coming back maybe around some sort of knoll or knob that's offered some protection. Maybe he's going into some kind of tent. And he's holding Goliath's big head in his hand. And he meets Saul. Whose son are you, young man? And what about the head in your hand? No, it doesn't say that. And David answered, I'm the son of the servant Jesse from Bethlehem. is an incredible intersection in the Bible. If, if I could say a bomb went off in the Bible, 
I would put it in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the explosion, the shrapnel goes all the way, all the way to Revelation and all the way to back to Genesis. So this is an explosion, and this one moment captures all of human history. David is the king. Now, nobody knows he's the king except for you and I. We've been reading through the story. Remember, Samuel had to come to his house and anoint him king. So nobody in this scene knows he's the king except for the reader. We know he's the true king, and the true king is holding out the head of the serpent. The true king cuts the head off of evil. Now, where do you first hear that? Genesis chapter 3. There's going to be someone who comes, and he's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of evil. The very last thing, next to the last thing Jesus said, Revelation 22, five verses from the end of the Bible. He says to John, Behold, I am the, the root and the shoot of David. So five verses before the end of the Bible, 1 Samuel 17, Genesis chapter 3. The true king. The very last thing Jesus says in Revelation, what is it? Yes, I'm coming again. I'm the true king. And here is a great shadow of the true king, David. You can see it from Genesis, and then you can see backwards from Revelation. He's the king. He's the one who has the power to crush the head of evil. And so it's such a pregnant moment here just at the end of this chapter, an incredible intersection. And then you move to chapter 18 and you ask, well, who else is in this little scene besides David and Saul? Well, the answer, Jonathan. David is standing in this tent. That's what they're standing in. And just imagine him walking in with a head. And he stands there. On one side is Saul. He's the king. And on the other side is Jonathan. He's the king in the wings. So here we have three kings. One, the true king, the real king. And these other two kings, the question is, how are they going to respond to the king of kings? How would people who think of themselves as king, how would people who think of themselves as in control, how would people who think of themselves at the center of their universe, how will they respond when someone else comes in and says, I'm the king? See, that's the question that's going to be answered here in chapter 18. And we see the two responses. First, we see Jonathan's response. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him in that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe and gave it to David, his armor, his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And what you're supposed to see is Jonathan is becoming the armor bearer to the true king. Jonathan looks and says, you be the king. 
I'm going to be right there by you. I'm going to be, my heart and soul is going to be knit together with yours, but I'm not the king. You're going to be the king, and I'm going to place all of my armor on you. I'm laying down all the things that give me value in this world, and I'm putting them on you. It's such a great response. You want to kiss Jonathan right here at this moment like his armor bearer just a few chapters ago. Now Saul, chapter 18, verse 7. After this great battle, women start to sing a song. So every time you have a great battle, you have a sort of a rallying cry. Somebody makes up a little limerick. And here's what they're singing. Saul has struck down his thousands. And Saul's going, yeah. Except for there's one more line. And David has tens of thousands. Uh Uh-oh. I mean, Saul's great, but the real king is David. How's Saul going to respond? Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they've only ascribed thousands. This, doesn't this sound like a middle school argument right here? And what more can he have but the kingdom? Well, that's what he's coming for. And you don't know it, Saul. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from, the, from, from God rushed upon Saul. He raved within his house. While David was in this corner playing a, what's basically a harp, as he did every day, Saul had his spear in his hand. Now, this is a little hyperlink. Who's the last person in the story who had a spear in his hand? Goliath. Who's the last person carrying armor? That, that's the armor bearer. So Jonathan is turning into the armor bearer, and who is Saul turning into? Goliath. He's turning into the serpent. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. And David evaded him, evaded him twice. Saul's sin left unchecked turns him into a serpent. Your sin, my sin, left unchecked, turns us into a serpent. Do you remember such a, this had to be the hardest thing for Peter to ever hear. Jesus says, hey, we're going this way to the cross. Remember what Peter says? takes him aside and doesn't like correct him. It says rebukes him. Jesus, I'm looking down on you now. We're not going that way. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, serpent. See, your turn, when you want to be the king, when you have to be in control, when it has to come out your way, you start turning into the serpent. And even Peter is turning into, Saul is turning into it. Saul, the very last thing we'll see in a few weeks, he dies in a battle and he gets his head cut off. It's not not by accident. All these things are connected. Saul, who had so much promise, he actually can't check his sin, can't check him wanting to be the king, so he turns in to Goliath and he gets his head cut off. 
chapter 20. David is in desperation. And so he comes to Jonathan, chapter 20, verse 1. David flees to these towns where Jonathan can be found. And he says this, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks, seeks my life? And Jonathan responds, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father, he's not, he's not going to do anything great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. So David says, your dad's trying to put me to death. No, it's not. I would know, Jonathan says. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks I, I shouldn't tell Jonathan. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there's one step between me and death. This is David. So then Jonathan says to David, Jonathan, who's not the king, what does he say to David? Whatever you say, I'll do. What a great, what a great response. See, you're the king. So you think you're in trouble. I don't think you're in trouble. But guess who wins that argument? You do. You're the king. I'll do whatever you say. And they hatch this little plan. And the plan is there's a new moon coming. At the new moon, you have this big, big Thanksgiving dinner. And all the family's supposed to be there. And they all have their own seats. And so you know if somebody doesn't show up. And Jonathan and David said, hey, David, you don't come to the feast. And it lasts two days. And I'll, I'll cover for you. I'll say you went to Bethlehem to be with your family. And if Saul says, hey, that's fine, then we know you're safe, David. But if Saul has a negative reaction, then we know we're in trouble. Chapter 20, verse 27. On the second day, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answers, well, David asked me if, if, I could, if he could go to Bethlehem. And he said, let me go, for my, my family holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brothers asked me to be there. So if I can find favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. This is the reason he's not at the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to Jonathan, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse? to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you or your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at his own son in order to kill him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. I guess so. See, when sin is left unchecked, you're willing to hurt your friends and your family. First, it's just your enemies, but if it's left unchecked, it just begins to stew, and now you're taking the same spear and pointing to the enemies. You start pointing them at the people you love. It's exactly what's happening here with Saul, who's turning into a serpent. Turns out nobody's safe around Saul. The chapter ends in verse 41 with a very tearful goodbye, and then chapter 
23. This is the last time David and Saul see each other. Verse 15. David, for the rest of the book from this chapter, verse uh, 20 on, he's running from Saul. He's basically in the wilderness trying to, 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 to keep away from Saul. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness in more, more than one way. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David to strengthen his hand in God. What a great phrase. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. He's just reminding him of the truth of God's promises. And I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained in the wilderness, and Jonathan went back home. As far as we know, like I said, this is the last time they saw each other. The end of the book, Jonathan enters in with his father into a foolish battle, and Jonathan is killed. So Jonathan, the, the most honorable, the most faithful, the one who sees the king and steps back, promises, hey, I'm going to be by your side. I'm never going to try to be the king. I'm always going to try to be the armor bearer. He never gets his chance. His dream of doing what was right gets cut off. See, who knows exactly how God's going to act? Because to me, it would seem like Jonathan would go down against 40,000 Philistines But God decided to use Jonathan for a great victory. But here, gosh, if I'm writing the story, Jonathan lives and he gets his chance to stand next to David. But who knows? It doesn't work out that way this time. Jonathan enters into these stories with courage and humility because he knows he's not the king. He's not calling all the shots. Now that's the context. You're saying, that sounds like a whole sermon right there. There's 20 sermons in that. And I just want to finish with two comments here, or two, two things. One, what does Jonathan teach us about having friendships with each other? He's got this model friendship with David. What does it teach us on how we can be friends? And then what does he teach us about friendship with God. First of all, when I say friendship with another, I'm assuming you, you understand, I'm not talking about Facebook friends. Facebook friends, that's a popularity contest. Those people aren't really your friends. They just, they don't even look at your feed, really. They don't tell you that, but um, they, they just click on and make sure they, you're on their friendship list so that it looks good on, their, on how many people they have. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this deep, authentic friendship that helps you enjoy life even more. A shared experience of greatness is, is greater still because you're sharing it with somebody. And somebody who helps you when you're at the bottom to, to not stay at the bottom that long because they're going to stay with you. That's the kind of friendship I'm talking about. I love the Andy Stanley quote. He says, your friends will determine the quality and direction of your life. Your friends will determine the quality and direction of your life. If you're a student here, of any age, your friends will determine the quality and direction of your life. Just say that over and over. Some of you might need some new friends. 
Your friends determine the quality and direction of your life. And Jonathan comes in and really helps the quality and direction of David's life. And I just want to mention three characteristics about their model friendship. One, they have a covenant. This word means commitment. It's the, it's the unconditional commitment. It's the commitment that a lot of times we use in a marriage ceremony. It, it's, it's not a cost-benefit analysis. It's not a user relationship. You're not, you're not having a friendship with somebody saying, yeah, I mean, he's not adding up right now, or she's not really coming through. I, Cost benefits kind of low. I'm going to kind of distance myself from that person. That's, that's a user relationship. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somebody who sticks. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Now, now listen carefully. A friend. This is about friendship. A friend is born for all times. But a brother for adversity. You hear what that's saying? When you're in uh, adverse circumstances, your, your, your brother, he's stuck with you, right? He's basically got to bail you out or help you out in some way because he's your brother. He doesn't have any choice, but a friend, a friend has a choice. And a real friend loves all the time the hard times, the good times, and the times in the middle that are just sort of you go through life. That's most of your life. That, that's what he's talking about. Everyone needs a friend that's there at all the times. And one, uh, one way of knowing that you have this kind of relationship, this kind of deep friendship, is that you're willing to take things off that you value and give to somebody else. That's, that's a signal for Jonathan and David. It's not, not just the armor, but they end up weeping together. They end up trusting each other emotionally. They're willing to take off a mask and say, this is who I really am. This is what really crushes my soul. See, if you don't have that, you're not willing to take off a mask, then you might be friendly, but you're not going to have this kind of covenant friendship. Secondly, and I really love this point, I really love every point I'm making here so far, but I really love this point. <laughs> the beginning of every friendship takes initiative. You know this, whether it's a small step or a large step, somebody, somebody in the relationship has to step forward. Somebody has to be vulnerable. Somebody has to be transparent. Somebody has to give time. Somebody's, somebody's got to give emotional energy. And somebody has to make the first step waiting to see if the person steps back or steps towards them. And what I think is so amazing about this is that Jonathan takes the first step. And this is why it's so amazing. David slays Goliath when he's 18. And at that moment, Jonathan takes the first step. What's amazing about that? One, Jonathan is the king to come. I mean, right? He's the king in the wings. He's got a lot to lose. It looks like this guy's going to take his place. Number two, Jonathan's 48. It makes a difference, doesn't it? Jonathan is a 48-year-old grown man just about ready to be king, and he's the one who steps down. In Titus, Paul says, older men teach younger men, older women teach younger men, younger women. 
And I think he might be saying, older women, older men, you take the first step. Like Jonathan, you, you be vulnerable. You take something off. You be transparent first. You take the initiative. I can't do this every time, but do you see this? I could do this 20 times in this one service. He's, Jesus, what is he doing? He's the true friend. He steps in. He takes the initiative. He steps down. He takes things off. Such a great, great picture. This initiative eventually has to be two-way. And you see David then seeks out Jonathan in chapter 20. Jonathan seeks out David in chapter 23. But Jonathan takes the first step. Third characteristic here of this horizontal relationship. One, you have to be committed. Two, you have to take, somebody has to take initiative. Three, there has to be encouragement. And this is chapter 23, really one of my favorite scenes. Of all these scenes, this is one of my five favorite. Jonathan senses David is in trouble. Saul is methodically tracking down David like a, a noose tightening around David's neck. He's closing in. And David's in the wilderness. He's not just in the wilderness physically. He's in the wilderness emotionally. Imagine, he knows he's been told he's going to be the king. But now he's in a cave. He's running around for his life. And he must be thinking, God, where are you? It's at this point Jonathan seeks David out. And I want you to notice the phrase, to strengthen David's hand in God. He seeks his friend out to strengthen his hand in God and to say what Jonathan knew was true, you're going to be king. I'm going to remind you of what God has said. And this is such a great characteristic of a great friendship. You, you have a sense that somebody's down, somebody's in a cave, somebody's, it, it's not working out well, whatever it is, and you take the initiative. And you see their hand is slipping away from the Lord. You can sense it. And so you come in with your hand, and you take their hand, and you take it back to the Lord, and you just hold it there until they got their grip reestablished. That's a great friendship. That's a great friendship. And that's what Jonathan does for David. He strengthens his hand in the Lord. And he doesn't just tell him nice things. He doesn't say, hey, you know, I was on the internet earlier and I saw this great story. No, he tells him the Bible. He comes and strengthens this man with the word of God. And that's what infuses Jonathan, I mean, David to, to continue to move forward. I, I hope you have a friend like this. Most of you know I have uh, developed a good friendship, really a great friendship with Rob Campbell, Pastor Rob Campbell, over the last 12 years. And so he's a, a pastor at New Beginning Christian Fellowship, and uh, he's, he and I are about the same age. We're in our mid-50s. We're both pastors. Uh, and he says we're brothers from a different mother which is true because we don't look the same. I'm very white and he's uh, very African-American. And so we have this great relationship, but it began by me taking the initiative. 
I was out at the university at UNCW, and he was out there with a, doing a student fair, and I saw him and went over to said, hey, I'd like to have lunch with you sometime. And for a long time, we were friends, friendly. But it seemed like most of the initiative came from me. He was always kind. He always responded well and said, hey, let's, let's have lunch. Let's talk or do something. But it was a lot of me stepping forward, which I was fine with, I think, Two pastors getting together, there's a, there's a weirdness about that. Um, and probably it's it, this way in other businesses, but with pastors, it's like, are you doing better than me? I mean, it's all kinds of weird things get in your mind. So two pastors have to kind of do this weird dance. But then he's black and I'm white. So we got the pastor and the race dance. We got all kinds of little dances going on. But I'm trying to take the initiative saying, I want to be more than just friendly. And about a year, a year and a half into our relationship, I was at a real low point. And he could sense it. I'm not sure how, but he could just tell. I don't know Paul that well, but something's different today than, than before. So without calling, without any announcement, he drives over here one day. And I'm sitting out here in the lobby praying. And I'm bewildered. I'm, like, I'm in the wilderness. I'm like, God, what in the world? I thought this was going to go this way. It doesn't look like this is going. I don't know. I don't even know where I am. And I don't think I know where you are right now. And he walks in. He, he encourages me in the Lord. He strengthens my hand. He prays for me. And he walks out. The whole event might have taken 20 minutes. But I couldn't tell you the encouragement that created for me. And I remember walking him to the door where the door most of us come in and out of and said goodbye. And as he walked out, I thought, we're friends. We're friends. We were friendly before that. And he might've said we were friends, but I think that's the moment I thought we're friends. He, he, we're committed. We're going to seek each other out. We're going to take the initiative. We're going to be vulnerable. We have something now, and I'm praying for you. You can't make it through this life without one of those people or more than one of those people. It doesn't have to be a hundred, but you got to have a few that have this kind of, that are in this kind of category. Finally, as we move towards communion, how do you have a friendship with God? What does Jonathan tells, tell us about this? Two brief comments. First, listen. To be friends with God, you cannot be king. To be friends with God, you cannot be the king. Now, just turn to the neighbor and say, you can't be king. And turn to the other side and say, hey, you know what? You can't be king. Some of you have been longing to say this to the person you're sitting next to. (laughs) If you and I want to have a relationship with God, the main thing, if if there's just one thing, you cannot be the king. This has to work itself all the way down into your soul. You just can't be the king. And there couldn't be any clearer picture of this than this particular passage. David is the king. 
He's holding out the head of the serpent. And it's, it's Jonathan's responsibility to say, I'm not the king. I'm taking off all the things that gave me weight in this world and I'm putting them at your feet. Because you're the king. I'm not trying to be the king anymore. I'm taking these things off that cause me to want to be the king. I'm taking the things off that cause me to want to be in control. I'm taking these things off and I'm giving them to the king. And I'm going to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done. You see, a thousand years before Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer, the shadow was helping us see what that looks like. You cannot be the king. And if you cannot be the king, there's going to have to be things that you strip off. If you're not willing to strip things off, you can't have a friendship with God. Notice Saul's reaction, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 very critical point here. Saul's anger. Remember, it's, uh, Jonathan had told his dad, David couldn't be at this dinner party. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. You know, you know what kindling is? Kindling is the little small twigs or a pine cone or a pine straw, just these small things that if you bring a fire into it, it, it gives it an occasion to grow. And what, I, what, what we need to understand here is that kindling isn't the fire. The fire starts somewhere else. You, you strike a match, you, you light a lighter, you bring the fire to the kindle, and it begins to grow. And it doesn't say in this passage that Saul's anger was caused by Jonathan, no, it says Saul's anger was kindled by Jonathan. Jonathan's love for David was the occasion for the fire to grow. The fire was already there, and the fire in Saul's, in Saul's soul is a fire against God. This is not a battle about Saul trying to pin Jonathan to a wall. This is not a battle of, of Saul trying to pin David to the wall. This is a battle where Saul's trying to pin God to the wall and say, no, you've got to do it the way I want to do it. So many times our own anger is misplaced. You think it's this person. You think it's this occasion. And no, that just kindles a fire of you saying, God, you're not doing a good enough job running the universe, so I'm angry. And I can't pin you to the wall, so I'm going to pin my friends and my enemies to the wall. That's what's happening here with Saul. If you leave your sin unchecked, this is what you turn into. You start pinning your friends and the enemy against the wall as a way to be angry at God. Now, when you see this, this is ugly. I mean, he, Saul acts his sin out on the stage. It's so grotesque when you see it. 
But if you don't have Jesus as your king, if you're trying to be the king of kings, this is the way you look. And when you see that in your own soul, when when Paul Phillips sees that really a lot of his anger is towards God because he's not working it out the way I want, when I think he's not doing a good enough job, I need some help. I need some help at that very moment. And you know the kind of help I need? I need a true friend. I need someone who will take the initiative, who will see how low I am, And he'll still step in and he'll say, I'm going to now take off my robe of righteousness and I'm going to give it to you. And that's what the true king does. It's incredible. The king of kings sees your sorry soul and mine that's tried to pin him down and says, yeah, I'll take the spear you take my righteousness. What a deal. That's the gospel. And so on the very last night of the supper, Jesus is in in the upper room. All authority has been given to Jesus. It says it in John 13. Now, what would you do if all authority were suddenly infused into you? He takes off his robe and washes the feet of the disciples. And when he sits back down, he says, I call you my friends. Wow. Wow. Jesus looks at us, and he calls us his friends. But the only way you can have a relationship with Jesus is you can't be the king. And you have to accept his righteousness, not yours. And then the king of kings will say, come, let's eat together. Let's be friends. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus? This is a table for friends, not for kings. So if you're still the king, I would want you to stay in your seat and just think, Am I in a good spot? Do I make a good king? And I can give you your answer, no, you don't. But if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've taken his garment and you're saying, hey, you're the king, come, let's eat together. Let's pray. Lord, you're the king. And, And it's just so difficult in this world for me, and, and I know for many of us here, to, to not just so easily slip into the center of our universe. So I'm praying that, that Jonathan would be such a great model for us. That we would step aside as you, as you take the spear, as you pour out your blood and you give up your body in order for us to be friends. Would you minister to your people here through these elements, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our friend. Amen.